The innkeeper smiled, raising a hand. Mary! Hap! The young couple exchanged a brief word before the tall farmer walked over to Chronicler, still gently ushering the little girl in front of him. Bast got to his feet and offered up his chair to Hap. Mary approached the bar, casually untangling one of the little boy's hands from her hair. She was young and pretty, with a smiling mouth and tired eyes. Hello, Coat. I haven't seen you two in a long while, the innkeeper said. Can I get you some cider? I pressed it fresh this morning. She nodded, and the innkeeper poured three mugs. Bast carried two over to Hap and his daughter. Hap took his, but the little girl hid behind her father, peering shyly around his shoulder. Would young Master Ben like his own cup? Coat asked. He would, Mary said, smiling at the boy as he chewed on his fingers. But I wouldn't give it to him unless you're eager to clean the floors. She reached into her pocket. Coat shook his head firmly, holding up a hand. I won't hear of it, he said. Hap didn't take half of what the work was worth when he fixed my fences out back. Mary smiled a tired, anxious smile and picked up her mug. Thank you kindly, Coat. She walked over to where her husband sat, talking to Chronicler. She spoke to the scribe, swaying gently back and forth, bouncing the baby on one hip. Her husband nodded along, occasionally interjecting a word or two. Chronicler dipped his pen and began to write. Bast moved back to the bar and leaned against it, eyeing the far table curiously. I still don't understand all of this, he said. I know for a fact Mary can write. She sent me letters. Quoth looked curiously at his student, then shrugged. I expect he's writing wills and dispositions, not letters. You want that sort of thing done in a clear hand, spelled properly and with no confusion. He motioned to where Chronicler was pressing a heavy seal onto a sheet of paper. See? That shows he's a court official. Everything he witnesses has legal weight. But the priest does that, Bast said. Abbe Grimes is all sorts of official. He writes the marriage records and the deed when someone buys a plot of land. You said yourself, they love their records. Quoth nodded. True, but a priest likes it when you leave money to the church. If he writes up your will and you don't give the church as much as a bent penny, he shrugged. That can make life hard in a little town like this. And if you can't read, well, then the priest can write down whatever he wants, can't he? And who's to argue with him after you're dead? Bast looked shocked. Ebbe Grimes wouldn't do something like that. He probably wouldn't, Quoth conceded. Grimes is a decent sort for a priest. But maybe you want to leave a piece of land to the young widow down the lane and some money to her second son. Quoth raised an eyebrow meaningfully. That's the sort of thing a fellow doesn't care to have his priest writing down. Better to have that news come out after you're dead and buried deep. Understanding came into Bast's eyes, and he looked at the young couple, as if trying to guess what secrets they were trying to hide. Quoth pulled out a white cloth and began to polish the bar absentmindedly. Most times it's simpler than that. Some folk just want to leave Ellie the music box and not hear the other sisters wail about it for the next ten years. Like when the widow Graydon died? Exactly like when Widow Graydon died. You saw how that family tore itself up fighting over her things. Half of them still aren't on speaking terms. 
Across the room, the little girl stepped close to her mother and tugged insistently on her dress. A moment later, Mary came over to the bar with the little girl in tow. Little Syl has to tend to her necessary, she said apologetically. Could we... Coat nodded and pointed to the door near the stairway. Mary turned and held out the little boy to Bast. Would you mind? Moving mostly on reflex, Bast reached out with both hands to take hold of the boy, then stood there awkwardly as Mary escorted her daughter away. The little boy looked around brightly, not sure what to make of this new situation. Bast turned to face Quoth, the baby held stiffly in front of himself. The child's expression slowly shifted from curious to uncertain to unhappy. Finally, he began to make a soft, anxious noise. He looked as if he were thinking about whether or not he wanted to cry, and was slowly starting to realize that, yes, as a matter of fact, he probably did. Oh, for goodness sake, Bast, Quoth said in an exasperated voice. Here. He stepped forward and took hold of the boy, sitting him on top of the bar and holding him steady with both hands. The boy seemed happier there. He rubbed a curious hand on the smooth top of the bar, leaving a smudge. He looked at Bast and smiled. Dog, he said. Charming, Bast said, his voice dry. Little Ban began to chew on his fingers and looked around again, more purposefully this time. Mam, he said. Mam, 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 mam. Then he began to look concerned and make the same low, anxious noise as before. Hold him up, Quoth said, moving to stand directly in front of the little boy. Once Bast was steadying him, the innkeeper grabbed hold of the boy's feet and began a sing-song chant. Cobbler, cobbler, measure my feet. Farmer, farmer, plant some wheat. Baker, baker, bake me bread. Tailor, make a hat for my head. The little boy watched as Quoth made a different hand motion for each line, pretending to plant wheat and knead bread. By the final line, the little boy was laughing a delighted, burbling laugh as he clapped his hands to his own head along with the red-haired man. Miller, keep your thumb off the scale. Milkmaid, milkmaid, fill your pail. Potter, potter, spin a jug. Baby, give your daddy a hug. Quoth made no gesture for the last line. Instead, he tilted his head eyeing Bast expectantly. Bast merely stood there, confused. Then, realization dawned on his face. Reshi! How could you think that? He asked, his voice slightly offended. He pointed at the little boy. He's blonde! Looking back and forth between the two men, the boy decided that he would, actually, like to have a bit of a cry. His face clouded over, and he began to wail. This is your fault. Bast said flatly. Quoth picked the little boy up off the bar and jiggled him in a marginally successful attempt to calm him. A moment later, when Mary came back into the taproom, the baby howled even louder and leaned toward her, reaching with both hands. Sorry, Quoth said, sounding abashed. Mary took him back, and he went instantly quiet, tears still standing in his eyes. None of yours, she said. He's just mother-hungry lately. She touched her nose to his, smiling, and the baby gave another delighted, burbling laugh. How much did you charge them? Quoth asked as he walked back to Chronicler's table. Chronicler shrugged. Penny and a half. Quoth paused in the act of sitting down. His eyes narrowed. 
That won't cover the cost of your paper. Chronicler asked. I have ears, don't I? The Smith's Prentice mentioned the Bentleys are on hard times. Even if he hadn't, I still have eyes. Fellows got seams on both knees and boots worn nearly through. Little girl's dress is too short for her and half patches besides. Quoth nodded, his expression grim. Their south field's been flooded out two years running, and they had both their goats die this spring. Even if these were good times, it would be a bad year for them. With their new little boy, he drew a long breath and let it out in a long, pensive sigh. It's the levy taxes. Two this year already. Do you want me to wreck the fence again, Reshi? Bast said eagerly. Hush about that, Bast. A smile flickered around the edges of Quoth's mouth. We'll need something different this time. His smile faded. Before the next levy. Maybe there won't be another, Chronicler said. Quoth shook his head. It won't come until after the harvest, but it'll come. Regular taxmen are bad enough, but they know enough to occasionally look the other way. They know they'll be back next year, and the year after. But the bleeders... Chronicler nodded. They're different, he said grimly, then recited. If they could, they'd take the rain. If they can't get gold, they'll take the grain. Quoth gave a thin smile and continued. If you've got no grain, they'll take your goat. They'll take your firewood and your coat. If you've a cat, they'll take your mouse. And in the end, they'll take your house. Everyone hates the bleeders, Chronicler agreed darkly. If anything, the nobles hate them twice as much. I find that hard to believe, Quoth said. You should hear the talk around here. If the last one hadn't had a full armed guard, I don't think he would have made it out of town alive. Chronicler gave a bent smile. You should have heard the things my father used to call them, he said. And he'd only had two levies in twenty years. He said he'd rather have locusts followed by a fire than the king's bleeder moving through his lands. Chronicler glanced at the door of the inn. They're too proud to ask for help? Prouder than that, Quoth said. The poorer you are, the more your pride is worth. I know the feeling. I never could have asked a friend for money. I would have starved first. Alone? Chronicler asked. Who has money to lend these days? Quoth asked grimly. It's already going to be a hungry winter for most folk. But after a third levy tax, the Bentleys will be sharing blankets and eating their seed grain before the snow thaws. That's if they don't lose their house as well. The innkeeper looked down at his hands on the table and seemed surprised that one of them was curled into a fist. He opened it slowly and spread both hands flat against the tabletop. Then he looked up at Chronicler, a rueful smile on his face. Did you know I never paid taxes before I came here? The Edema don't own property as a rule. He gestured at the inn. I never understood how galling it was. Some smug bastard with a ledger comes into town, makes you pay for the privilege of owning something. Quoth gestured for Chronicler to pick up his pen. Now, of course, I understand the truth of things. I know what sort of dark desires lead a group of men to wait beside the road, killing tax collectors in open defiance of the king. Chapter 86 
The Broken Road We finished searching the north side of the King's Highway and started on the southern half. Often, the only thing that marked one day from the next were the stories we told around the fire at night. Stories of Oren Velsiter, Laniel Young again, and Ilian. Stories of helpful swine herds and the luck of Tinker's sons. Stories of demons and fairies, of riddle games and barrow drogs. The Edema Rue know all the stories in the world, and I am Edema down to the center of my bones. My parents told stories around the fire every night while I was young. I grew up watching stories in dumb show, listening to them in songs, and acting them out on stage. Given this, it was hardly surprising that I already knew the stories Daydan, Haspa, and Martin told at night. Not every detail, but I knew the bones of them. I knew their shapes and how they would end. Don't mistake me. I still enjoyed them. Stories don't need to be new to bring you joy. Some stories are like familiar friends. Some are dependable as bread. Still, a story I haven't heard before is a rare and precious thing. And after twenty days of searching the Eld, I was rewarded with one of those. Once, long ago, and far from here, Hespa said as we sat around the fire after dinner. There was a boy named Jax, and he fell in love with the moon. Jax was a strange boy, a thoughtful boy, a lonely boy. He lived in an old house at the end of a broken road. He— Daydan interrupted. Did you say a broken road? Hespa's mouth went firm. She didn't scowl exactly, but it looked like she was getting all the pieces of a scowl together in one place, just in case she needed them in a hurry. I did. A broken road. That's how my mother told this story a hundred times when I was little. For a moment, it looked like Daydan was going to ask another question, but instead, he showed a rare foresight and simply nodded. Hespa reluctantly put the pieces of her scowl away. Then, she looked down at her hands, frowning. Her mouth moved silently for a moment. Then she nodded to herself and continued. Everyone who saw Jax could tell there was something different about him. He didn't play. He didn't run around getting into trouble. And he never laughed. Some folks said, What can you expect of a boy who lives alone in a broken house at the end of a broken road? Some said the problem was that he never had any parents. Some said he had a drop of fairy blood in him, and that kept his heart from ever knowing joy. He was an unlucky boy. There was no denying that. When he got a new shirt, he would tear a hole in it. If you gave him a sweet, he would drop it in the road. Some said the boy was born under a bad star, that he was cursed, that he had a demon riding his shadow. Other folks simply felt bad for him, but not so bad that they cared to help. One day, a tinker came down the road to Jax's house. This was something of a surprise because the road was broken, so nobody ever used it. Hoy there, boy! the tinker shouted, leaning on his stick. Can you give an old man a drink? Jax brought out some water in a cracked clay mug. The tinker drank and looked down at the boy. You don't look happy, son. What's the matter? Nothing is the matter, Jack said. It seems to me a person needs something to be happy about, and I don't have any such thing. Jack said this in a tone so flat and resigned that it broke the tinker's heart.
I'm betting I have something in my pack that would make you happy, he said to the boy. What do you say to that? I'd say, if you make me happy, I'll be grateful indeed, Jack said. But I haven't got any money to spend, not a penny to borrow, to beg, or to lend. Well, that is a problem, said the tinker. I am in business, you see. If you can find something in your pack that will make me happy, Jack said, I'll give you my house. It's old and broken, but it's worth something. The tinker looked up at the huge old house, one short step away from being a mansion. It is at that, he said. Then Jack looked up at the tinker, his small face serious. And if you can't make me happy, what then? Will you give me the packs off your back, the stick in your hand, and the hat off your head? Now, the tinker was fond of a wager, and he knew a good bet when he heard one. Besides, his packs were bulging with treasures from all over the four corners, and he was confident he could impress a small boy. So he agreed, and the two of them shook hands. First, the tinker brought out a bag of marbles, all the colors of sunlight. But they didn't make Jacks happy. The tinker brought out a ball and cup. But that didn't make Jacks happy. Ball and cup doesn't make anyone happy, Martin muttered. It's the worst toy ever. Nobody in their right mind enjoys bowling cup. The tinker went through his first pack. It was full of ordinary things that would have pleased an ordinary boy. Dice, puppets, a folding knife, a rubber ball, but nothing made Jacks happy. So the tinker moved on to his second pack. It held rarer things. A gear soldier that marched if you wound him. A bright set of paints with four different brushes a book of secrets, a piece of iron that fell from the sky. This went on all day and late into the night, and eventually the tinker began to worry. He wasn't worried about losing his stick, but his packs were how he made his living, and he was rather fond of his hat. Eventually, he realized he was going to have to open his third pack. It was small, and it only had three items in it, but they were things he only showed to his wealthiest customers. Each was worth much more than a broken house. But still, he thought, better to lose one than to lose everything and his hat besides. Just as the tinker was reaching for his third pack, Jacks pointed. What is that? Those are spectacles, the tinker said. They're a second pair of eyes that help a person see better. He picked them up and settled them onto Jax's face. Jax looked around. Things look the same, he said. Then he looked up. What are those? Those are stars, the tinker said. I've never seen them before. He turned, still looking up. Then he stopped stock still. What is that? That is the moon, the tinker said. I think that would make me happy, Jack said. Well, there you go the tinker said, relieved. You have your spectacles. Looking at it doesn't make me happy, Jack said. No more than looking at my dinner makes me full. I want it. I want to have it for my own. I can't give you the moon, the tinker said. She doesn't belong to me. She belongs only to herself.
Only the moon will do, Jack said. Well, I can't help you with that, Itinka said with a heavy sigh. My packs and everything in them are yours. Jax nodded, unsmiling. And here's my stick. A good sturdy one it is, too. Jax took it in his hand. I don't suppose, the tinker said reluctantly, that you'd mind leaving me with my hat? I'm rather fond of it. It's mine by right, Jax said. If you were fond of it, you shouldn't have gambled it away. The tinker scowled as he handed over his hat. Tempe made a low noise in his throat and shook his head. Hespa smiled and nodded. Apparently, even the Adem knew it's bad luck to be rude to a tinker. So Jack settled the hat on his head, took the stick in his hand, and gathered up the tinker's packs. When he found the third one, still unopened, he asked, What's in here? Something for you to choke on, the tinker spat. No need to get tetchy over a hat the boy said. I have greater need of it than you. I have a long way to walk if I'm to find the moon and make her mine. But for the taking of my hat, you could have had my help in catching her, Itinka said. I will leave you with the broken house, Jack said. That is something, though it will be up to you to mend it. Jack's put the spectacles on his face and started walking down the road in the direction of the moon. He walked all night, only stopping when she went out of sight behind the mountains. So Jax walked day after day, endlessly searching. Daydan snorted. Doesn't that sound just a little too familiar? He muttered loud enough for everyone to hear. I wonder if he was pissing his time up a tree like we are. Hesper glared at him, the muscles in her jaw clenching. I gave a quiet sigh. Are you done? Hespa asked pointedly, glaring at Daydan for a long moment. What? Daydan asked. Shut up while I'm telling my story is what, Hespa said. Everyone else had their say, Daydan climbed to his feet, indignant. Even the mute chimed in. He waved a hand at Tempe. How come I'm the only one you get hissy at? Hespa seethed for a moment, then said, you're trying to pick a fight halfway through my story is why. Telling the truth isn't picking a fight, Daydan grumbled. Someone needs to speak some sense around here. Hesper threw her hands up in the air. You're still doing it. Can't you set it down for one evening? Every chance you get, you have to bitch and minge on. At least when I don't agree, I speak my mind, Daydan said. I don't take the coward's way out. Hespa's eyes flashed, and despite my better judgment, I decided to jump in. Fine, I interrupted, looking at Daydan. If you've got a better idea for finding these folk, let's hear it. Let's talk it over like adults. My interjection didn't slow Daydan down the least bit. It just pointed him in my direction. What would you know about adults? He said. I'm sick and tired of being talked down to by some boy who probably doesn't even have hair on his balls yet. I'm sure if the mayor had known how hairy your balls were, he would have put you in charge, I said, with what I hoped was infuriating calmness. Unfortunately, it seems he missed that fact and decided on me instead. Daydan drew a breath, 
but Tempe broke in before he could start. Balls, said the Adem curiously. What is balls? All the air went out of Daydan in a rush, and he turned to look at Tempe, half irritated, half amused. The big mercenary chuckled and made a very clear motion between his legs with a cupped hand. You know, balls, he said, without a trace of self-consciousness. Behind his back, Hesper rolled her eyes, shaking her head. Ah, Tempe said, nodding to show his understanding. Why is the mayor looking at hairy balls? A pause. Then a storm of laughter rolled through our camp, exploding with all the force of the pent-up tension that had been ready to boil into a fight. Hespa laughed herself breathless, clutching at her stomach. Martin wiped tears from his eyes. Daydan laughed so hard he couldn't stand upright and ended up crouching with one hand on the ground to steady himself. By the end of it, everyone was sitting around the fire, breathing hard and grinning like silly idiots. The tension that had been thick as winter fog was gone for the first time in days. It was only then that Tempe briefly caught my eye. His thumb and forefinger rubbed together gently. Gladness? No. Satisfaction. Realization dawned on me as I met his eye again. His expression was blank as always. Studiously blank. So blank it was almost smug. Can we get back to your story, love? Daydan asked Hespa. I'd like to know how this boy gets the moon in the bed. Hespa smiled at him, the first honest smile I'd seen her give Daydan in a handful of days. I've lost my place, she said. There's a rhythm to it, like a song. I can tell it from the beginning, but if I start halfway through, I'll get it all tangled up in my head. Will you start over tomorrow if I promise to keep my mouth shut? I will, she agreed, if you promise. Chapter 87 The Lethani The next day Tempe and I went to Crossin for supplies. It meant a long day of walking, but not having to look for trail sign every step of the way made it feel like we were flying down the road. As we walked, Tempe and I traded words back and forth. I learned the word for dream, and smell, and bone. I learned there were different words in Ademic for iron and sword iron. Then we had a long hour's worth of fruitless conversation as he tried to help me understand what it meant when he rubbed his fingers over his eyebrow. It almost seemed to be the same thing as a shrug, but he made it clear that it wasn't the same. Was it indifference? Ambiguity? Is it the feeling you have when someone offers you a choice? I tried again. Someone offers you an apple or a plum. I held up both hands in front of myself. But you like both the same. I pressed my fingers together and smoothed them over my eyebrow twice. This feeling? Tempe shook his head. No. He stopped walking for a moment, then resumed. At his side, his left hand said, Dishonesty. What is plum? Attentive. Confused, I looked at him. What? What does plum mean? He gestured again, profoundly serious, attentive. I turned my attention to the trees and immediately heard it, movement in the undergrowth. The noise came from the south side of the road. 
the side we hadn't searched yet. The bandits. Excitement and fear swelled in my chest. Would they attack us? In my tatty cloak, I doubted I looked like much of a target, but I was carrying my loot in its dark, expensive case. Tempe had changed back to his tight mercenary reds for the trip into town. Would that discourage a man with a longbow? Or would it seem I was a minstrel rich enough to hire an ADEM bodyguard? We might look like fruit ripe for the picking. I thought longingly of the arrow catch I'd sold to Kilvin and realized he'd been right. People would pay dearly for them. I'd give every penny in my pocket for one right now. I gestured to Tempe. Acceptance. Dishonesty. Agreement. A plum is a sweet fruit, I said, straining my ears for telltale sounds from the surrounding trees. Should we run to the trees for cover, or would it be better to pretend we were unaware of them? What could I do if they attacked? I had the knife I'd bought from the tinker on my belt, but I had no idea how to use it. I was suddenly aware of how terribly unprepared I was. What in God's name was I doing out here? I didn't belong in this situation. Why had the mayor sent me? Just as I was starting to sweat in earnest, I heard a sudden snap and rustle in the underbrush. A horned heart burst from the trees and was across the road in three easy bounds. A moment later, two hinds followed. One paused in the center of the road and turned to look at us curiously, her long ear twitching. Then she was off and lost among the trees. My heart was racing, and I let out a low, nervous laugh. I turned to look at Tempe, only to find him with his sword drawn, the fingers of his left hand curled into embarrassment, then made several quick gestures I couldn't identify. He sheathed the sword without a flourish of any sort, a gesture as casual as putting your hand in your pocket. Frustration. I nodded. Glad as I was not to be sprouting arrows from my back, an ambush would at least have given us a clue as to where the bandits were. Agreement. Understatement. We silently continued our walk toward Crossan. Crossan wasn't much as far as towns go. Twenty or thirty buildings with thick forest on every side. If it hadn't been on the King's Highway, it probably wouldn't even have warranted a name. But since it was on the King's Highway, there was a reasonably stocked general goods store that supplied travelers and the scattering of nearby farms. There was a small post station that was also a livery and a farrier, and a small church that was also a brewery. And an inn, of course. While the Laughing Moon was barely a third the size of the pennies worth, it was still several steps above what you'd expect for a town like this. It was two stories tall, with three private rooms and a bathhouse. A large, hand-painted sign showed a gibbous moon wearing a waistcoat, holding its belly while it rocked with laughter. I'd brought my loot that morning, hoping I might be able to play in exchange for a bit of lunch, but that was just an excuse. I was desperate for any excuse to play. My enforced silence was wearing on me as much as Daydan's muttering. I hadn't gone so long without my music since I'd been homeless on the streets of Tarbian. Tempe and I dropped off our list of supplies with the elderly woman who ran the store. Four large loaves of trail bread, a half pound of butter, quarter pound of salt, flour, dried apple, sausages, a side of bacon, a sack of turnips, six eggs, two buttons, feathers for refletching Martin's hunting arrows, bootlaces, soap, and a new whetstone to replace one Daydan had broken. 
All told, it would come to eight silver bits from the mayor's rapidly thinning purse. Tempe and I made our way over to the inn for lunch, knowing it would be an hour or two before our order was ready. Surprisingly, I could hear noise from the taproom from across the street. Places like this were usually busy in the evening when travelers stopped for the night, not in the middle of the day when everyone was in the fields or on the road. The room quieted when we opened the door. At first, I hoped the customers were glad to see a musician. Then I saw their eyes were all for Tempe in his tight mercenary reds. There were fifteen or twenty people idling in the taproom. Some hunched at the bar, others clustered around tables. It wasn't so crowded we couldn't find a table to sit, but it did take a couple minutes before the single harassed-looking serving girl came to our table. Will it be then? she asked, brushing a sweaty strand of hair away from her face. We've got pea soup with bacon in and a bread pudding. Sounds lovely, I said. Can we get some apples and cheese too? Drink? Soft cider for me, I said. Beer, Tempe said, then made a gesture with two fingers on the tabletop. Small whiskey. Good whiskey. She nodded. I'll need to see your money. I raised an eyebrow. You've had trouble lately? She sighed and rolled her eyes. I handed her three half-pennies, and she hurried off. By then, I was sure I wasn't imagining it. The men in the room were giving Tempe dark looks. I turned to a man at the table next to us, quietly eating his bowl of soup. Is this a market day or something? He looked at me like I was an idiot, and I saw he had a bruise going purple on his jaw. There's no market day in Crossin'. There's no market. I came through here a while back and things were quiet. What's everyone doing here? Same thing as always, he said. Looking for work. Crossin' is the last stop before the eld gets good and thick. A smart caravan will pick up an extra guard or two. He took a drink. But too many folk been getting feathered off in the trees lately. Caravans aren't coming through so often. I looked around the room. They weren't wearing any armor, but now that I was looking, I could see the marks of mercenary life on most of them. They were rougher looking than ordinary townsfolk. More scars, more broken noses, more knives, more swagger. The man dropped his spoon into his empty bowl and got to his feet. You can have the place for all I care, he said. I've been here six days and only seen four wagons come through. Besides, only an idiot would head north as a pay-a-day. He picked up a large pack and slipped it over his shoulders. And with all the folk gone missing, only an idiot would take on extra help in a place like this. I'll tell you this for free. Half of these reeking bastards would probably cut your throat the first night on the road. A broad-shouldered man with a wild black beard let loose a mocking laugh from where he stood at the bar. Just because you cannot roll dice doesn't make me a criminal, Suey, he said with a thick northern accent. You say something like that again, I'll give you twice as much as you got last night, plus interest. The fellow I'd been talking to made a gesture you didn't have to be Adem to understand and headed out the door. The bearded man laughed. Our drinks showed up just then. Tempe drank off half his whiskey in a single swallow 
and let out a long, satisfied sigh, slouching down in his seat. I sipped my cider. I'd been hoping to play for an hour or two in exchange for our meal, but I wasn't fool enough to play to a room composed entirely of frustrated mercenaries. I could have done it, mind you. In an hour, I could have them laughing and singing. In two hours, I could have them crying into their beer and apologizing to the serving girl. But not for the price of a meal. Not unless I had no better options. This room reeked of trouble. It was a fight waiting to happen. No trooper worth his salt could fail to recognize that. The broad-shouldered man picked up a wooden mug and sauntered with theatrical casualness over to our table where he pulled out a chair for himself. He smiled a wide, insincere smile through his thick black beard and stuck his hand out in Tempe's direction. Hello there, he said loud enough for everyone in the bar to hear. Me name's Tom. Yourself? Tempe reached out and shook, his own hand looking small and pale gripped in the other man's huge, hairy one. Tempe. Tam grinned at him. And what are you doing in town? We're just passing through, I said. We met up on the road and he was nice enough to walk with me. Tam looked me up and down dismissively. I wasn't talking to you, boy, he growled. Mind your betters. Tempe remained silent, watching the big man with the same placid, attentive expression he always wore. I watched his left hand come up to his ear in a gesture I didn't recognize. Tam took a drink, watching Tempe all the while. When he lowered his mug, the dark hair around his mouth was wet, and he wiped his forearm across his face to dry it. I've always won it, he said, loud enough for it to carry through the whole room. Yay, dem. How much does one of your fancy lads make? Tempe turned to look at me, his head tilted slightly to one side. I realized he probably couldn't understand the man's thick accent. He wants to know how much money you earn, I explained. Tempe made a wavering motion with one hand. Complicated. Tam leaned over the table. What if you were hired to guard a caravan? How much would you charge a day? Two jots, Tempe shrugged. Three. Tam gave a showy laugh, loud enough that I could smell his breath. I'd expected it to stink, but it didn't. It smelled like cider, sweet with mulling spices. You hear that, boys? He shouted over his shoulder. Three jots a day, and he canna hardly talk. Most everyone was already watching and listening, and this piece of information brought a low, irritated murmur from the room. Tam turned back to the table. Most of us get penny a day when we get work at all. I get two because I'm good with horses and I can lift up the back of a wagon if I need to. He rolled his broad shoulders. Are ye worth twenty men in a fight? I don't know how much of it Tempe understood, but he seemed to follow the last question fairly well. Twenty. He looked around appraisingly. No. Four. He wavered his spread hand back and forth uncertainly. Five. This did nothing to improve the atmosphere in the room. 
Tam shook his head in exaggerated bemusement. Even if I believed you for a second, he said, that means you should make four or five pennies a day, not twenty. What? I put on my most ingratiating smile and leaned into the conversation. Listen, I... Tam's mug knocked hard against the tabletop, sending a splash of cider leaping up into the air. He gave me a dangerous look that didn't hold any of the false playfulness he'd been showing Tempe. Boy, he said, you interrupt me again and I'll knock your teeth right out. He said it without any particular emphasis, as if he were letting me know that if I jumped into the river, I was bound to get wet. Tam turned back to Tempe. What makes you think you're worth three jots a day? Who buys me buys this? Tempe held up his hand. And this? He pointed to the hilt of his sword. And this? He tapped a leather strap that bound his distinctive Adam Reds tightly to his chest. The big man slapped the table hard with the flat of his hand. So that's the secret, he said. I need to get me a red shirt. This brought a chuckle from the room. Tempe shook his head. No. Tam leaned forward and flicked at one of the straps near Tempe's shoulder with a thick finger. Are you saying I'm not good enough to wear a fancy red shirt like yours? He flicked the strap again. Tempe nodded easily. Yes. You are not good enough. Tam grinned madly. What if I said your mother was a whore? The room grew quiet. Tempe turned to look at me. Curiosity. What is whore? Unsurprisingly, that hadn't been one of the words we had shared over the last span of days. For half a moment, I considered lying but there was no way I could manage it. He says your mother is a person men pay money to have sex with. Tempe turned back to the mercenary and nodded graciously. You are very kind. I thank you. Tam's expression darkened, as if he suspected he was being mocked. You coward! For a bent penny I'd give you such a kick and you'd be wearing your picker backwards! Tempe turned to me again. I do not understand this man, he said. Is he attempting to buy sex with me, or does he wish to fight? Laughter roared through the room, and Tam's face grew red as blood under his beard. I'm pretty sure he wants to fight, I said, trying to keep from laughing myself. Ah, Tempe said. Why does he not say... Why all of this? He flicked his fingers back and forth and gave me a quizzical look. Poncing around? I suggested. Tempe's confidence was having a relaxing effect on me, and I wasn't above getting a little dig of my own in. After seeing how easily the Adam had dealt with Daydan, I was looking forward to seeing him thump some of the arrogance out of this horse's ass. Tempe looked back toward the big man. If you wish to fight. Now stop pouncing around. The Adem made a broad gesture to the rest of the room. Go find others to fight with you. Bring enough women to feel safe. Good. 
my brief moment of relaxation evaporated as Tempe turned back to me, exasperation thick in his voice. You people are always talk. Tam stomped back to the table where his friends sat throwing dice. All right, now. You heard him. The little gripshit says he's worth four of us, so let's show him the sort of damage four of us can do. Brandon, Vin, Jane, you in? A bald man and a tall woman came to their feet, smiling. But the third waved his hand dismissively. I'm too drunk to fight proper Tam, but that's not half as drunk as I'd need to be to go up against a bloodshirt. They're bastards in a fight. I seen it. I was no stranger to bar fights. You'd think they'd be rare in a place like the university, but liquor is the great leveler. After six or seven solid drinks, there is very little difference between a miller on the outs with his wife and a young alchemist who's done poorly on his exams. They're both equally eager to skin their knuckles on someone else's teeth. Even the Aeolian, genteel as it was, saw its share of scuffles. If you stayed late enough, you had a decent chance of seeing two of the embroidered nobility slapping away at each other. My point is, when you're a musician, you see a lot of fights. Some people go to the bars to drink. Some go to play dice. Some folk go looking for a fight, and others go hoping to watch a fight. Folk don't get hurt as much as you'd expect. Bruises and split lips are usually the worst of it. If you're unlucky, you might lose a tooth or break an arm, but there's a vast difference between a friendly bar fight and a back-alley coshing. A bar fight has rules and a host of unofficial judges standing around to enforce them. If things start to get vicious, spectators are quick to leap in and break things up because that's what you'd want someone to do for you. There are exceptions, of course. Accidents happen, and I knew all too well from my time in the Medica how easy it was to sprain a wrist or dislocate a finger. Those might be minor injuries to a cattle drover or an innkeeper, but to me, with so much of my livelihood relying on my clever hands, the thought of a broken thumb was terrifying. My stomach nodded as I watched Tempe take another swallow of whiskey and get to his feet. The problem was that we were strangers here. If things got ugly, could I count on the irritated mercenaries to step in and put a stop to things? Three against one was nothing close to a fair fight, and if it got ugly, it would get ugly fast. Tempe took a mouthful of beer and looked at me calmly. Watch my back, he said, then turned to walk to where the other mercenaries stood. For a moment, I was simply impressed by his good use of a Turin. Since I'd known him, he'd gone from practically mute to using idiomatic speech. But that pride quickly faded as I tried to think of something I could do to stop the fight if things got out of control. I couldn't think of a blessed thing. I hadn't seen this coming, and I had no clever tricks up my sleeve. For lack of any better options, I drew my knife out of its sheath and held it out of sight below the level of the table. The last thing I'd want to do is stab someone, but I could at least menace them with it and buy us enough time to get out the door. Tempe gave the three mercenaries an appraising look. Tam was inches taller than he, with shoulders like an ox. There was a bald fellow with a scarred face and a wicked grin. Last was the blonde woman who stood a full hand taller than Tempe. There is only one woman, Tempe said, looking Tam in the eye. Is enough. You may bring one more. 
The female mercenary bristled. You swagger cock, she spat. I'll show you what a woman can do in a fight. Tempe nodded politely. His continuing lack of concern began to relax me. I had heard the stories, of course, a single ADEM mercenary defeating a dozen regular soldiers. Could Tempe really fight off these three at the same time? He certainly seemed to think so. Tempe looked at them. This is my first fight of this sort. How does begin? My palms started to sweat where I gripped the knife. Tam stepped up so their chests were only inches apart. He loomed over Tempe. We'll start by whipping you bloody. Then we'll give you a kicking. Then we'll come round to do it again, to make sure we didn't miss anything. As he said the last, he slammed his forehead down into Tempe's face. My breath caught in my chest, and before I could get it back, the fight was over. When the bearded mercenary snapped his head forward, I had expected to see Tempe reel backward, nose broken and gushing blood. But Tam was the one who staggered backward, howling and clutching at his face, blood spurting from beneath his hands. Tempe stepped forward, got his hand on the back of the big man's neck, and spun him effortlessly into the ground where he landed in a messy tangle of arms and legs. Without a hint of hesitation, Tempe turned and kicked the blonde woman squarely in the hip, making her stagger. While she was reeling, Tempe punched her sharply in the side of the head, and she folded bonelessly to the ground. That's when the bald man stepped in, arms spread like a wrestler. Quick as a snake, he got one hand on Tempe's shoulder and the other on his neck. I honestly can't say what happened next. There was a flurry of movement, and Tempe was left gripping the man's wrist and shoulder. The bald man snarled and struggled, but Tempe simply twisted the man's arm until he was bent over, staring at the floor. Then Tempe kicked the man's leg out from under him, sending him tumbling to the ground. All in less time than it takes to tell it. If I hadn't been so stunned, I would have burst into applause. Tam and the woman lay with the dead stillness of those deeply unconscious, but the bald man snarled something and began to make his way unsteadily back to his feet. Tempe stepped close, struck him in the head with casual precision, then watched the man slump limply to the ground. It was, I thought idly, the most polite punch I'd ever seen. It was the careful blow of a skilled carpenter pounding a nail, hard enough to drive it fully home, but not so hard as to bruise the wood around it. The room was very quiet in the aftermath. Then, the tall man who had refused to fight raised his mug in salute, spilling a little. Good on ye, he said loudly to Tempe, laughing. Nobody will think less of you if you show Tom a bit of your boot while he's down there. Lord knows he's done it enough in his day. Tempe looked down as if considering it, then shook his head and walked quietly back to our table. All eyes were still watching him, but the looks weren't nearly as dark as before. Tempe came back to the table. Did you watch my back? I looked up at him blankly, then nodded. What did you see? Only then did I understand what he really meant. Your back was very straight. Approval. Your back is not straight. He held up a flat hand, tilted to one side. That is why you stumble in the cave, then. It is... Looking down, 
He trailed off, having noticed my knife half-concealed in my tatty cloak. He frowned. Actually frowned with his face. It was the first time I'd seen him do it, and it was amazingly intimidating. We will speak on this later, he said. At his side, he gestured, vast disapproval. Feeling more chastised than if I'd spent an hour on the horns, I ducked my head and put the knife away. We had been walking quietly for hours, our packs heavy with supplies, when Tempe finally spoke. There is a thing I must teach you. Serious. I'm always glad to learn, I said, making the gesture I hoped meant earnest. Tempe walked to the side of the road, set down his heavy pack, and sat on the grass. We must speak of the Lithani. It took all my control to not burst out into a sudden giddy smile. I had been wanting to bring up the subject for a long while, as we were much closer than when I'd first asked him, but I hadn't wanted to risk offending him again. I sat quietly for a moment, partly to maintain my composure, but also to let Tempe know I was treating this subject with respect. The Lethani, I repeated carefully. You said I must not ask of it. You must not, then. Now, perhaps. I... Uncertain. I am pulled many ways, but now asking is... I waited for another moment to see if he would continue on his own. When he didn't, I asked the obvious question. What is the Lethani? Serious. Tempe looked at me for a long moment, then suddenly burst out laughing. I do not know, and I cannot tell you. He laughed again, understatement. Still, we must speak of it. I hesitated, wondering if this was one of his strange jokes that I could never seem to understand. Is complicated, he said. Hard in my own language. Yours? Frustration. Tell me what you know of the Lethani. I tried to think of how I could describe what I'd heard of the Lethani using only the words he knew. I heard the Lethani is a secret thing that makes the Adem strong. Tempe nodded. Yes, this is true. They say if you know the Lethani, you cannot lose a fight. Another nod. I shook my head, knowing I wasn't getting my point across. They say the Lethani is a secret power. Adem keep their words inside. I made a gesture as if gathering things close to my body and hoarding them. Then those words are like wood in a fire. This word fire makes the Adem very strong, very fast, skin like iron. This is why you can fight many men and win. Tempe looked at me intently. He made a gesture I didn't recognize. That is mad talking, he said at last. Is that the correct word? Mad? He stuck out his tongue and rolled his eyes, wiggling his fingers at the side of his head. I couldn't help but laugh nervously at the display. Yes, mad is the word. Also crazy. Then what you have said is mad talking and also crazy. But what I saw today, I said, 
Your nose did not break when struck with a man's head. That is no natural thing. Tempe shook his head as he climbed to his feet. Come, stand. I stood, and Tempe stepped close to me. Striking with the head is clever. It is quick. Can startle if opponent is not ready. But I am not not ready. He stepped closer still, until we were almost touching chest. You are the loud man, he said. Your head is hard. My nose is soft. He reached out and took hold of my head with both his hands. You want this. He brought my head down slowly until my forehead pressed his nose. Tempe let go of my head. Striking with the head is quick. For me, little time. Can I move? He moved my head down as he pulled away, and this time my forehead came into contact with his mouth instead, as if he were giving me a kiss. This is not good. The mouth is soft. He tipped my head back again. If I am very fast... He took a full step back and brought my head down farther until my forehead touched his chest. He let me go, and I stood back up. This is still not good. My chest is not soft, but this man has a head harder than many. His eyes twinkled a little, and I chuckled, realizing he had made a joke. So, Tempe said, stepping back to where we were before, what can Tempe do? He motioned. Strike with the head. Slow. I show. Vaguely nervous, I brought my head down slowly as if trying to break his nose. Matching my slow speed, Tempe leaned forward and tucked his chin a bit. It wasn't much of a change, but this time, as I brought my head down, my nose met the top of his head. Tempe stepped back. See? Cleverness. Not mad thinking word fire. It was very fast, I said, feeling slightly embarrassed. I could not see. Yes, fighting is fast. Train to be fast. Train, not word fire. He gestured earnest and met my eye, a rarity for him. I tell this because you are the leader. You need the knowing. If you think I have secret ways and iron skin... He looked away, shaking his head. Dangerous. We both sat back down next to our packs. I heard it in a story, I said by way of explanation. A story like we tell around the fire at night. But you, he pointed to me, you have fire in your hands. You have... He snapped his fingers, then made a gesture like a fire roaring up suddenly. You have the doing of this, and you think the Adem have word fires inside? I shrugged. That is why I ask of the Lathani. It seems mad, but I have seen mad things be true, and I am curious. I hesitated before asking my other question. You said, who knows the Lathani cannot lose a fight? Yes, but not with word fires. The Lethani is a type of knowing. Tempe paused, obviously considering his words carefully.
Letani is most important thing. All Adam learn. Mercenary learn twice. Shayan learn three times. Most important. But complicated. Letani is many things, but nothing touched or pointed to. Adam spent whole lives thinking on the Letani. Very hard. Problem, he said. It is not my place to teach my leader, but you are my student in language. Women teach the Litani. I am not such. It is a part of civilization, and you are a barbarian. Gentle sorrow. But you want to be civilization, and you have need of the Litani. Explain it, I said. I will try to understand. He nodded. The Lethani is doing right things. I waited patiently for him to continue. After a minute, he gestured. Frustration. Now you ask questions. He took a deep breath and repeated. The Lethani is doing right things. I tried to think of an archetypal example of something good. So... The Lathani is giving a hungry child food to eat? He made a wavering motion that meant yes and no. The Lathani is not doing a thing. Lathani is the thing that shows us. Lathani means rules? Laws? Tempe shook his head. No. He gestured to the forest around us. Law is from outside. Controlling. It is the... The horse mouth metal and the head strings. Questioning. Bridle and bit? I suggested, motioning as if pulling a horse's head about with a pair of reins. Yes. Law is bridle and bit. It controls from outside. The litani, he pointed between his eyes, then at his chest, lives inside. Litani helps decide. Law is made because many have no understanding of Lithani. So, with the Lithani, a person does not need to follow the law. Pause. Perhaps. Frustration. He drew out his sword and held it parallel to the ground, its edge pointing up. If you were small, walking this sword would be like the Lithani. Painful for feet? I asked, trying to lighten the mood a bit. Amusement. Anger. Disapproval. No. Difficult to walk. Easy to fall on one side. Difficult to stay. The Lithani is very straight? No. Pause. What is it called when there is many mountain and one place for walking? A path? A pass? Pass, Tempe nodded. The Latani is like a pass in the mountains. Bends. Complicated. Pass is easy way through. Only way through. But not easy to see. Path that is easy much times not go through mountains. Sometimes goes nowhere. Starve. Fall onto hole. So 
The Lathani is the right way through the mountains. Partial agreement. Excitement. It is the right way through the mountains, but the Lathani is also knowing the right way. Both. And mountains are not just mountains. Mountains are everything. So the Lathani is civilization. Pause. Yes and no. Tempe shook his head, frustrated. I thought back to what he had said about mercenaries having to learn the Lathani twice. Is the Lathani fighting? I asked. No. He said this with such absolute certainty that I had to ask the opposite to make sure. Is the Lathani not fighting? No. One who knows the Lathani knows when to fight and not fight. Very important. I decided to change directions. Was it of the Lathani for you to fight today? Yes. To show Adam is not afraid. We know with barbarians not fighting is coward. Coward is weak. Not good for them to think. So with many watching, fight. Also to show one Adam is worth many. What if they had won? Then barbarians know Tempe is not worth many. Slight amusement. If they had won, would today's fight be not of the Lathani? No. If you fall and break a leg in Mountain Pass, it is still the pass. If I fail while following the Lathani, it is still the Lathani. Serious. This is why we are talking now. Today, with your knife, that was not the Lethani. It was not a right thing. I was afraid you would be hurt. The Lethani does not put down roots in fear, he said, sounding as if he were reciting. Would it be the Lethani to let you be hurt? A shrug. Perhaps. Would it be of the Lathani to let you be, extreme emphasis, hurt? Perhaps no, but they did not. To be first with the knife is not of the Lathani. If you win and are first with the knife, you do not win. Vast disapproval. I couldn't puzzle out what he meant by the last. I don't understand, I said. The Lethani is right action, right way, right time. Tempe's face suddenly lit up. The old trader man, he said with visible enthusiasm, in the stories with the packs, what is the word? Tinker? Yes, the tinker. How you must treat such men. I knew, but I wanted to see what the Adem thought. How? He looked at me, his fingers pressing together, irritation. You must be kind and help them, and speak well, always polite, always. I nodded. And if they offer something, you must consider buying it. Tempe made a triumphant gesture. Yes, you can do many things when meeting Tinker, but there is only one right thing. He calmed himself a little. Caution.
but only doing is not the Letani. First knowing, then doing, that is the Letani. I thought on this for a moment. So, being polite is the Letani? Not polite, not kind, not good, not duty. The Letani is none of these. Each moment, each choice, all different. He gave me a penetrating look. Do you understand? No. Happiness. Approval. Tempe got to his feet, nodding. It is good you know you do not. Good that you say. That is also of the Letani. Chapter 88 Listening Tempe and I returned to find the camp surprisingly cheerful. Daydan and Hespa were smiling at each other, and Martin had managed to shoot a wild turkey for dinner. So we ate and joked, and after the washing up was done, Hespa told her story about the boy who loved the moon, starting again at the beginning. Daydan kept his mouth miraculously shut, and I dared to hope our little group was finally, finally starting to become a team. Jack's had no trouble following the moon, because in those days, the moon was always full. She hung in the sky, round as a cup, bright as a candle, all unchanging. Jack's walked for days and days until his feet grew sore. He walked for months and months, and his back grew tired beneath his packs. He walked for years and years and grew up tall and lean and hard and hungry. When he needed food, he traded out of the tinker's packs. When his shoes wore thin, he did the same. Jacks made his own way, and he grew up clever and sly. Through it all, Jacks thought about the moon. When he began to think he couldn't go another step, he'd put on his spectacles and look up at her, round-bellied in the sky. And when he saw her, he would feel a slow stirring in his chest. And in time, he came to think he was in love. Eventually, the road Jacks followed passed through Tinue, as all roads do. Still, he walked, following the great stone road east toward the mountains. The road climbed and climbed. He ate the last of his bread and the last of his cheese. He drank the last of his water and the last of his wine. He walked for days without either, the moon growing larger in the night sky above him. Just as his strength was failing, Jacks climbed over a rise and found an old man sitting in the mouth of a cave. He had a long grey beard and a long grey robe. He had no hair on the top of his head or shoes on the bottom of his feet. His eyes were open and his mouth was closed. His face lit up when he saw Jacks. He came to his feet and smiled. Hello, hello, he said, his voice bright and rich. You're a long way from anywhere. How is the road to Tinue? It's long, Jack said, and hard and weary. The old man invited Jacks to sit. He brought him water and goat's milk and fruit to eat. Jacks ate hungrily, then offered the man a pair of shoes from his pack in trade. No need, no need, the old man said happily, wiggling his toes. But thanks for offering all the same. Jack shrugged. As you will, but what are you doing here, so far from everything? 
I found this cave when I was out chasing the wind, the old man said. I decided to stay because this place is perfect for what I do. And what is that? Jax asked. I am a listener, the old man said. I listen to things to see what they have to say. Ah, Jack said carefully.